Come with me, please, in the Word of God this morning to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. First chapter of Matthew's Gospel. We'll begin reading just in a moment. This morning, obviously, because uh, it's just the last Sunday before Christmas, I want to share with you a Christmas message uh, titled, The First Christmas. Now, for electricity to work, there has to be a negative as well as a positive. For crops to grow, there has to be rain as well as the sun. The stars shine at their brightest whenever the sky's at its darkest. We must have cold and heat. We must have light and dark. We must have winter and summer. There is mourning as well as rejoicing, and there is leaving as well as arriving. Well, you may say, what in the world has all that got to do with Christmas? Surely the Christmas story is one of shepherds singing, of angels rejoicing, of Mary praising. Yes, absolutely, no question about that. But if you listen very carefully, you'll hear some chords played in the minor key. And if you read it very carefully, you'll see the shadow of the cross, and you'll see pain and hurt and tears. And somehow, particularly as Christians, when it comes to the Advent story, we have kind of romanticized it and sanitized it. But if we look a little bit deeper into it, uh, we'll find that actually there was moments uh, when it was very costly and painful and hurtful. Take, for instance, the pregnancy of Mary. In Matthew chapter 1, reading from verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." So that all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. That's from Isaiah 7.14. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, if you notice here, it says in that first verse, verse 18, the birth of Jesus was, Christ was, on, was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Some of your translations may say espoused to Joseph. Now, you have to understand when the New Testament talks about betrothal, betrothal or espousal. It's talking about a process uh, 
that's involved in marriage. And the process begins very early in a young couple's life. Uh, the parents, when they're little children, two sets of parents would get together and they would arrange that at some point, Joseph and Mary, when they got to be young teenagers, that they would be married. So the whole thing was arranged for them. That was the deal. That was the way things were done. In fact, many countries, that's the way things are still done. But whenever they got to teenage years, and it would usually be early in teenage years. I'm, I'm talking here maybe 15. Probably 14 at the earliest, but 15 or 16. Then the betrothal would take place, the espousal. And this would be a, a legal binding agreement that could only be uh, annulled by divorce. So it was legally binding. Again, the two heads of the families would get together. Things would be signed. A dowry would be paid. And there would be roughly a year of betrothal. And within that year, this young couple could start a courtship. But they never could be together alone. They would always have to be chaperoned. How would you like that young folk today? I think that's a good idea. I think we should make that law. And so for a full year, they would get to know one another. And then at the end of that year, then the marriage ceremony would take place. And we don't need to go into all of that. But if within that betrothal period, if for some reason or other, that young bride-to-be, as it were, if she would fall pregnant, then that would be the biggest disgrace imaginable. And not only that, she would be in danger, actually, of being stoned to death if there was adultery involved because they were as good as married by law. The only thing was the marriage hadn't been consummated and wouldn't be until the ceremony of marriage, until the honeymoon. And so, for Mary, for the angel Gabriel to come to Mary and tell her that she was going to be pregnant. And that that little child in her womb would be the Son of God, the Savior of the world. For the angel to tell her that, it must have been such a shock out of all of the millions of young Israeli women, for her to be chosen was such an amazing privilege. But what an awesome responsibility and what a tremendous shock it must have been to this young teenage woman. I'm talking here 15, maybe 16. But she accepts what the angel said and she rejoices with great joy. She took a massive step of faith it took incredible obedience because having accepted uh, this message from God, the only question she asked, well, how can this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel says, well, the power of the highest shall overshadow you, and then that which is born of you shall be the Son of God. There's no way to explain that, is there? It's supernatural. It's a miracle. But she accepted that. But now the trouble is, having accepted that, what is she going to say to her parents? 
What's she going to say to her close friends? She's going to be the talk of the whole village. Everybody knows this young woman, and she's a young woman who's godly, who's pure, she's a virgin, uh, she's, a, she's a godly, gracious young woman, and suddenly she's going to be pregnant, and she knows that she's going to be the talk of the whole village, the fingers is going to be pointing, the tongues are going to be wagging. How's she going to handle that? And worse still, what in the world is she going to say to Joseph? What's she going to say to him? Would you believe her if you were Joseph? Can you imagine her going to Joseph and saying, Joseph, I have something to tell you. I don't know how you're going to respond to this, but here goes. I'm pregnant. The angel Gabriel appeared to me and told me I'm going to be pregnant. And that which is going to be born of me is going to be the Son of God. Would you have believed her if you had been Joseph? Can, can you see how this would have been extremely difficult? Can you see how putting yourself in Joseph's position, how he loved this young woman, this was the bride of his dreams, he had known he's going to be married for years, this is the moment he's been waiting for, when this betrothal was over, they're going to be married for the rest of their lives. And suddenly she's pregnant and he knows it's not me. It's definitely not me. And she's told me this story about an angel appearing. I mean, would you believe that? I don't think so. And he struggled to believe it too. In fact, it took God to speak to him in a dream and tell him that this is right. This is God before he would accept it. And then having accepted it, he knows fine rightly then that the whole town's going to be talking about the both of them now. You know, there came a point before he accepted it that he, he decided, well, I love this woman. I love her deeply and I love her dearly and I don't want her to be embarrassed and I don't, certainly don't want her stoned. And so the Old Testament law says, write out a bill of divorcement. So he says, I'll just write out a bill of divorcement. I'll just put her away privately. And that will be the end of it. She can go off somewhere. But then he got the dream. And then he accepted it. And now the two of them's in the position where everybody will be talking about them. Who's going to believe them? Huh? She's pregnant? And you're making it out to be spiritual? <laughs> you're bringing angels into the story? Cut yourself on. You don't need to believe that nonsense. That's exactly how people would think. That's exactly how they'd react. So even though this is a wonderful thing, it's a glorious thing, but put yourself in the position. How would you like to be in that position? Very, very difficult. No doubt there was tears. No doubt Joseph, he went to bed for some nights and cried in his pillow. His beautiful bride debris is pregnant. What's he going to do? So when it comes to this wonderful Advent story, 
You know, we read it and we kind of gloss over it, but when you put yourself in the position, it's a different story, isn't it? It's tough. What faith? What obedience? What courage? It took for Mary and for Joseph to carry this out. But we're glad that they did. Yes, they took all of the flack. No doubt people come up to him in the street and just was right in their face. What could they say? All they could say was, sorry, this is what's happened. It's true, even though you don't believe it. Sometimes obeying God and doing the will of God puts you in a difficult set of circumstances. Not everybody is going to like it. And you can't explain it to everyone's satisfaction. And sometimes you just have to take it on the chin and say, well, this is God. Whether you believe it or whether you don't, this is God. And time will prove it. And then there was the birth itself. In Luke chapter 2. Verse 1, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. The census first took place when Quirinius was governor in Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. You don't need to turn to this, but let me just uh, read a verse from little prophet Micah. Chapter 5 and verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, even from everlasting. Micah prophesied that the Messiah the Christ, the anointed one, would be born in Bethlehem. 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Seven centuries had passed. God has great patience. He's not in a hurry. He knows what he's doing. And after seven centuries... And out of that 700 years, there was the last 400 years of that, God was not speaking from heaven. There was no prophets speaking until the advent of his son. Suddenly, after 700 years, the time had come 
for his son to make his appearance. And here she is in the womb of this young teenage bride living in Nazareth, in Galilee. But she needs to be in Bethlehem, Judea. She's some 70 or 80 miles away from where she should be. And she has no reason to be in Bethlehem. And there's no desire to be there. It's not on her radar. It's not something that she wants to do or even is thinking about. So what does God do? He speaks. He prompts, is a better word. He prompts the most powerful man on earth, Caesar Augustus, of the most powerful empire on earth. And he prompts him to hold a census all over his empire. And this could involve millions upon millions of people having to uproot themselves and travel to their birthplace. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the logistics of all of this and the hardship and the inconvenience of it all and the botheration of the whole thing to having to do this to get this young couple to move 80, 70, 80 miles so that this scripture, 700 years old, this prophecy, seven centuries old, could be fulfilled right at the right day, at the right time, at the right hour. That's God. You know, powerful men in this world, presidents and kings or queens or prime ministers, they don't realize how much, even subconsciously, they can be influenced by our God. The Bible tells us that people are put in positions of power and we need to pray for them. And God can move them even without their thinking to carry out his plans and his purposes. So here they are, this young couple, heavily pregnant, now has to travel on donkey or walking over rough terrain and because Galilee and Judea in between those two, Samaria and the Jews is no dealing with the Samaritans. So could they go in a straight line or would they have to bypass Samaria? So the reason why I'm saying this because this would take at least four days walking, at least and if they have to bypass Samaria, it could take a week or eight or nine days. This was tough. This was going to be hard. This would be an arduous journey for this young woman to take. But it would be, have to be done. It would have to be done. And then when Mary and Joseph got there, there was no room found for them because there were so many had come. And by the time they got there, there was just no room. And we know how it ended up, how that the little child, the very son of God, God incarnated himself and came in a human body. And there he is, born and lying in a manger. Feeding trough for the cattle. No doubt Joseph put some fresh straw in it, but that was the best they had. What condescension, what humility. 
Do you think that would have been Mary and Joseph's choice for this child? Do you think that's the place where they wanted him to be born? They didn't have much. He was a carpenter. He was just making a living, barely making a living. But still, he would have wanted better than that for his wife and for this child. But that's all he got. That wouldn't have been their plan. Sure, it wouldn't. You know, God could have got that little baby born to somebody who was fabulously wealthy, who lived in a palace, but he didn't. He didn't. Jesus, in those temptations in the wilderness, when Satan tempted him to turn stones into bread, he could have done that. We know that he could turn water into wine. He could have done that, no trouble. But he didn't. When he was hanging on the cross and they were mocking him and saying, if you're the Son of God, come down from the cross, he could have, but he didn't. He could have called 12 legions of angels, but he didn't. God's ways are not our ways. And sometimes God's ways are inconvenient. Sometimes they are uncomfortable. Sometimes they are very challenging. But if it's God's way, it's the best way. And it's the right way. And if it's God's way, it's the only way. I would rather be uncomfortable in God's will and comfortable out of it. And so we have our pregnancy. We have the birth itself. What about the meeting with Simeon? Again, look, chapter 2. It says in verse 25 of Luke chapter 2, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Let's just stop there a moment. Simeon was a just man and devout. This was a good, godly, mature man of God. This was a man, rare for those days, for the Holy Spirit to be intimately dealing with him, speaking to him. And here's a man who obviously for many, many years would go into the temple every single day to worship to praise God, but to watch and to wait for the consolation of Israel, for the Messiah to appear. That's what that means. And somewhere during those years, the Holy Spirit speaks to him and tells him very clearly, you will not die until you see the Messiah of Israel. Well, that would motivate you, wouldn't it? That kept him going. And so every day he goes to the temple and he's praying and he's watching and he's waiting and he's desiring and he's looking around because there would be hordes of people coming to the temple every day. And he'd be scanning his eyes around the crowd periodically, wondering, waiting, watching, where is Messiah? Is this the day? 
Every morning he would open his eyes, he'd probably say, Lord, is this the day? Will it be today I'll see him? What will he look like? Will he be a full-grown man? Well, he would be acquainted well with the scriptures. He would know Isaiah 7.14, that a virgin would conceive. He'd know Micah 5 and 2. He'd be born in Bethlehem. But maybe that's already happened. Maybe that's long since happened. Maybe he's just going to appear as a full-grown man. What's he going to be like? Or will it be a baby? Who knows? But he's trusting the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who spoke to him in the first place, he's trusting will speak again. And so one day he gets up and he probably prays, Lord, is this the day? And it was the day. And it was the hour. And as he looked around the temple, now you can imagine that there would be lots and lots of couples bringing their children to be dedicated in the eighth day to be circumcised. And offer up an offering. Lots of them. So he's looking around. There's all these couples with their little babies. With their offering. Little lamb. There's an offering. And he's looking. He's wondering. And suddenly, the Holy Ghost prompts him. And his eyes fall on Mary and Joseph. And this little bundle in their arms. And the Holy Spirit in his heart says, There he is. He's the one. What a moment that must have been for Simeon. All of his life he's waited for this special moment. And here it is. So what does he do? So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed him. Now, imagine you're Mary and Joseph. You're coming along. And here's this complete stranger. You've never met him in your life before. And he comes over to you. And he said, Can I just hold your little child for a moment? Because this little child is special. I just want to bless this little baby. But there must have been something about Simeon. There must have been a, a kindness, a godliness, a gentleness. There's something about them that they trusted. They handed the little child over. And suddenly, he's got the Messiah in his arms. His dream has come true. And now he's going to speak into this little life. So he took his up in his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. We don't know what age Simeon was. But we can imagine he probably was a, quite an old man now. And he was ready to depart in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. The Gentiles had no revelation. But this child would bring a light of revelation to the Gentiles. And the glory of your people Israel. Israel had lost its glory. 
Hasn't found it yet, by the way. But this child who is now the Son of God, who sits at the right hand of the Father, he's going to come back, and Israel, once again, will have its glory. All Israel shall be saved. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them. By the way, Mary and Joseph, he was a carpenter, but I said earlier, he was just making a living. They were quite poor, and they didn't have a lamb. They had only two turtle doves to offer up. One of the least offerings you could bring, but it's all they had. They couldn't afford a lamb. But yet God entrusted his only son with some of the poorest of people. There's a connection, you know, God loves the poor. <laughs> it was the poor who heard Jesus gladly. By and large it was, wasn't it? But listen to what he says. This is a wonderful story, isn't it? So far, this is wonderful. They marveled, they were excited. Things he was saying. But listen. Then Simon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Boy, ever that was true. How they spoke against him. How the religious establishment who should have known better, who were supposed to be the most spiritual people in Israel, how they spoke against him. And they ridiculed him and they mocked him. And in the end they put him to death. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. A couple of things here. That sword pierced her heart. It was pierced many times, wasn't it? Here was her own precious gift from God growing up, becoming a teenager, becoming into his 20s, into his 30s, and how they spoke against him and ridiculed him and would not believe him. Even his own brothers would not believe in him. And every time something nasty or cruel or wicked was said against him, it was like a sword got into Mary's heart. But then on the cross, when he was dying that horrible death on the cross for you and for me to forgive us our sins, to save our eternal souls, when that was happening and Mary was standing watching that, can you imagine the sword in her heart at that moment? What pain and anguish she went through. By the way, you notice that, yes, a sword will pierce through your own heart also. It's in parenthesis there. So if we just leave that out for a second and just read that again. Shall be for the fallen rising again of many in Israel, for a sign which shall be spoken against that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Well, we know the thoughts of many hearts today because they're speaking against them. 
And they're using his name in the most blasphemous ways they can imagine. And boy, does that reveal the heart, doesn't it? And so here they are, with this little child, receiving this tremendous prophecy from this great godly man. And they're excited and thrilled and they're marveling and then suddenly it changes. And now there's something to really think about. He'll be a sign spoken against. And a sword will pierce your heart. And then of course there was the journey into Egypt. In Matthew chapter 2. We're getting through this. Just give us a few more moments. You know, the wise men, they got the star to direct them. And they came, and then, having talked to Herod, and then God revealed to him not to go back to Herod and give many reports, but to go home another way. Verse 13, Now when they had departed, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt I have called my son. That's taken from Hosea 11 verse 1. Egypt, from where they were at that particular moment, was some probably, well, there was, the reckoned historians say in Egypt at that time there could be up to a million Jews living in Egypt. There were thousands of them in Alexandria. And so we, we, we assume that that's probably where they had it for, to be with their own people. So we're talking here probably something like 200 miles. That's a big journey on a donkey, walking over rough terrain, full of bandits and robbers. And to have a young infant child, not a babe anymore, but a young infant child, probably a year old. And Joseph, when he got this dream, he didn't hang around, he didn't wonder about it, he didn't say, I wonder if it was that the piet last night. He knew it was God, and he acted immediately in the middle of the night. He woke his Mary up and got the child out of bed and away they went. And they'd have to begin a whole new life all over again. Sure he had a trade, but where do you start? But then, they had the gold and the frankincense and the mirror that the wise men brought. God was already supplying 
the need before the need arose because he knew they would need this to help them on the journey and when they got there. It's tough, isn't it? No easy road. See, that's what I mean. We sanitize the story. We romanticize it. But actually, it was a tough time. It required tremendous obedience and courage and faith and a willingness to do what God wanted them to do no matter what the cost would be to themselves. And boy, they did it. And then you had, of course, Herod. Herod slaying the children. What a brute. And I use that word advisedly. What a brute of a man was Herod. Caesar Augustus was the man who put him in charge. And even Caesar Augustus said, I would rather be his pig than his son. Here's a man who murdered his... The wife he's supposed to love the most, he murdered her. Murdered three of his sons, his brother-in-law, his mother-in-law. Murdered a whole family of 45 of Maccabees. Murdered priests. Here's a man when he was dying, he was so hated and he knew it that he decided nobody will mourn my passing but I'll make sure there'll be mourning and he invited a thousand noble men to come to be with him and he didn't tell them but actually the moment he died he'd given orders that they would die too. They would be executed so there'd be mourning when he died. That's the wickedness of this evil man. Here's a man who his whole lineage is like this. He's not a Jew. He's a self-styled king of the Jews because he's reigned over all Judea, but he's not a Jew. He's an Edomite. And even though he was a wicked, evil man, he got his great because he was a, a great builder. He built the city of Censorea. He built lots of things. One of the greatest buildings he ever built was the temple, Herod's temple. Magnificent building he built. Great architect in that sense. Great visionary in that sense. But a wicked, evil brute of a man. You know, historians say, you know, the killing of the children we'll read in a moment. Historians say, well, it wasn't recorded in history. Recorded in the Bible. Josephus didn't record this. It was just a little thing. It was only some babies in Bethlehem. It's nothing to this man. If he murdered his own sons, he doesn't mind murdering other people's sons. But his son, Herod Antipas, it was his son who murdered John the Baptist. It was his son who mocked Jesus at one of his trials. And his grandson, Herod Agrippa I, his grandson was the one who killed James, the brother of John, with a sword and proceeded also to take Peter, although he didn't get Peter. So this wicked evilness was all down through his lineage. That's the inheritance he left.
So, in Matthew chapter 2, just where we finished off reading there in verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew picks up on this scene. And he gets back to <coughs> Jeremiah 31. When thousands of the youth of Israel, of Judah in particular, were being carted away into Babylon. And he imagined Rachel, who was a mother in Israel, rising up and weeping for her descendants, for her children. And Matthew brings that image into this story. Because actually, Jeremiah, when he saw them, Ramah was quite close to where this happened. So he immediately borrows from that imagery in Jeremiah. And there was much weeping and wailing over those little infants that were slain by this cruel, wicked man. Don't you think Mary heard about that? Don't you think that she would have shed some tears because of that? Don't you think that maybe she would have thought when she heard, this is because of me, this is because of us. We were spared, but they weren't. Don't you think that question would go through her mind? Don't you think that sword at that moment would have been piercing her heart also? I think so. I believe so. By the way, Herod died an awful, painful death. Antipas, he died an awful, painful death like him. And then finally, again in Matthew 2, story of the wise men coming, following the star they saw in the east. Who were these wise men? We don't know. What were they? We don't know. Some say astrologers. Some say they were the scientists of their day. Some say philosophers. We don't know. Were they three? The Bible doesn't say so. But because it mentions three gifts, that's where we get the three wise men from. Probably was more than that. Probably was a whole retinue of them. Whenever we see in our little plays and we see the wise men standing over the manger, no, that didn't happen. They came to the house where they were, where the young child lay, 
not the little baby in manger. So sometimes we get all these things a bit skew-off, don't we? And it's not particularly, we don't particularly, we're not that picky sometimes when we do the little children's plays. But anyway, here they come. They talk to Herod. But whenever they go to meet, this is in verse 10, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. Let me just add this little thing. Notice they fell down and they worshipped him. Didn't worship Mary. They worshipped him. All worship, all praise, all prayer must be directed to him. And when they opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What gifts to present? They presented themselves first. Because before we ever bring a gift to present to him, we need to present ourselves first. And they did that. And then they opened their gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Here's the shadow of the cross. Gold is a gift fit for a king. Whenever the Queen of Sheba came to Solomon, and the Queen of Sheba was no slouch, but when she came to visit Solomon, the most wisest, greatest king in all of the east, she brought the gold of Ophir. Loads of it. As a gift for a king. Because gold is one of those precious metals that is almost indestructible. Bury gold for 10,000 years and dig it up again. It'll look as if the day you put it in. There's a quality about it which speaks of the everlasting quality of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who lives in the power of an endless life, the Bible says. Gold stands for deity, for divinity, it's timeless. It's priceless. The ark, the mercy seat, the golden altar, the boards in the tabernacle, acacia wood overlaid with gold. So much gold representing deity and divinity. What about the frankincense? Frankincense was a beautiful substance, very expensive. In Exodus 30, 34, God commanded Moses to make a special perfume. There's four ingredients, and frankincense was one of them. And it was for nobody else to smell. It was to be before God, not to eat. But it was representation. Something that was for him and for him alone. In the tabernacle and in the temple, the table of showbread with the twelve loaves, pure frankincense was to be put over it. Frankincense was a substance that they burnt on the golden altar of incense. 
Go up before God, representing what? Intercession, prayer. So we see Christ here represented as the intercessor. The Bible says that he sits at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us. And then, of course, the myrrh. The myrrh was a substance that was used particularly regarding death. You know, when Jesus was dying on the cross in Mark chapter 15, those who stood by, they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to deaden the pain. And he refused it. He wouldn't take it. Whenever Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came to put Christ's body in the tomb in John 19, they brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes and cassia, a hundred pounds worth. Such was the smell and the fragrance to temporarily kill the smell of death. So myrrh speaks of death and dying. Christ, our atoning sacrifice, dying on the cross for us. One writer says that gold represents him as the everlasting king. Frankincense represents him as the interceding king and myrrh as the suffering king. And so you cannot get away when you read the Christmas story and you read it not on the surface level, but when you dig a little bit further, you cannot get away from Christ. You cannot get away from the suffering and the pain and the agony and the tears. It's a wonderful story. And it is full of joy and full of rejoicing. And we're glad that it happened. But it cost something. It cost the Son of God to leave the splendor of heaven itself to leave the golden streets of glory and to come down and to be born in that feeding trough. That cost something. It cost him to go to the cross to die for us. It cost him everything. And so whenever we sing our carols, and I love the carols, and some of the carols, are, some of them has got great theology in them. Whenever we sing them, look at what we're singing. Listen to what we're singing. And think of the cost. Think of the price that was paid by Mary, by Joseph, by Christ himself. What a wonderful story this is. What a glorious event. His first advent. And thank God, his second advent is getting closer every day single day that we live. And we should be like Simeon of old who waited for his first advent. We should be waiting for his second advent. On to them that look for him shall he appear the second time. Are we looking for him? Are we waiting for his second advent? It's coming soon. Amen? Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that you sent your only begotten Son into this world. And you did not spare your own Son, but you freely gave him for us on that cross. So, Lord, today we have been mindful of your first coming. We thank you that all of those prophecies, hundreds of years old, centuries old, every one of them was fulfilled to the letter, to the exact moment in the due season that you sent your son. We thank you that that silence from heaven was broken and that you were speaking again to a lost world and you're still speaking today. So Lord, drop this into our hearts today and give us food for thought over this Christmas period and make us truly thankful for all that you've done for us. And we'll give you the honor and we'll give you all of the glory. Thank you for all the little children and the teachers that were doing this today. We bless you for every little life that's been represented. Bless the wee lambs, Lord. Thank you for them. Help them to grow up to be men and women of God. Lord, they're growing up in a wicked, evil world. A world, Lord, that denies you, that blasphemes you. Help them, Lord, to be ones that will stand up for you. To be Daniels, Lord. To be Esthers. To be men and women of God. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.